0: Tina Koto no mai haere mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, the party that could decide the next government. Who's going to be Deputy Prime Minister?
1: Oh. Give it to the <laughs> <laughs>
0: Then we go to Massey University as Don Brash returns to speak. And the US Supreme Court is set to overturn the right to abortion. At a tense moment in a divided country, what will it mean for America's democracy?
2: This is what the Republicans have been working toward this day
3: for decades.
0: We'll have that issue for you shortly. But first, halfway through the political term, Te Pate Māori's MPs have carved out a reputation as political anarchists of sorts, railing against the system from the inside. But several polls, including the latest News Hub Read Research poll this week, have placed the party in a position that would allow it to choose the next government. Now look, we are a long way from the next election. But the party is starting to consider what it might do in a situation where it holds the balance of power. I sat down with co-leaders Debbie Nadi Wapaka
1: and Rawiri Waititi
0: and began by asking them to reflect on the last 18 months.
1: What are your biggest achievements? Um, well, you can talk about the Māori Health Authority. We were the only ones that campaigned on a Māori Health Authority. As you can see, that has been one of the hottest topics that this government has pushed through. Uh, one is around Maori Wards. The next one will be around um, the um, uh, the Maori role and th- so things like that um, that the party Maori have been absolutely fierce ensuring that that uh, we protect the interests of Maori in this house has has been achieved and so that 's only, that's only part of it. the Matariki bill. Uh, was presented to this house back in 2009 and there's been a constant kaupapa for the Party Māori.
4: We've been um, secure enough to be able to bring to rise kōpapa that were really great in its time but maybe um, politically weren't acceptable such as Aotearoa. Um, I mean, that, that petition got 60,000 votes and support and something like, yeah that's right, it's a lot less than 50 hours yeah. we've been able to bring back in um, Arahi uh, you Katani's know, GST of Kai which 75% of Aotearoa accept, you know, accepts and agrees with. Yeah. Um, we've been able to sort of, I guess, bring in mai, yeah. which is to bring about the conversation of what a future focused um, Aotearoa looks like, a treaty centric Aotearoa. And this, this place doesn't get future focused enough. Um,
1: you know, we've been able to challenge this house in terms of the ability to be able to express ourselves in our own cultural identity. One, about not wearing ties and being able to freely wear tonga. Um, to be able to challenge the oath to the Queen without acknowledging uh, Tangata whenua and Te Tiriti o Waitangi. All of those things we have brought to light and we will continue to do. Has that Mm. been
0: more of a focus though? Because of those examples you listed, Mm. Debbie, I suppose none of those examples have actually been codified in law as such. You might have been advocating for Mm. them, but at times watching from the outside, it's looked like your priority has been to agitate.
4: Absolutely. I, I think... You know, we have an, a generation now that don't want to continuously apologise for being raised to be tiriti-centric, for being raised in our reo, for knowing that our mātauranga Māori education, Māori health models work better. So uh, it has been deliberate because we want to be able to achieve manamotahake and remind ourselves um, of what we can do when we're aspirational politicians. And I think that's probably what the place doesn't do enough.
0: Right. If, mm. if mana motohake is the ultimate
1: aspiration for te party Māori,
0: let me ask this. Rawari, who do you represent?
1: We represent the, um, the desires and the ambitions of our people in, in this, in our, in our, on our FENUA. Regardless whether they vote for us or not, that's just democracy. Uh, but democracy doesn't belong to us that belongs to a westernized system. Uh, the system that does belong to us is, is mana motuhake and Tino rangatiratanga, And we re- represent everybody, uh, all the iwi across the country that that have a desire to achieve mana motuhake and Tino Orangatiratanga.
0: Tiiwi Pakeha? Oh, absolutely. Oh, so tangata tiriti are
1: absolutely part of that conversation. The Treaty o Waitangi secures a life for tangata whenua and tangata tiriti here in this country.
0: There's a really interesting distinction that I've noticed in some of the language you use around these conversations, and that's that you don't talk about tangata Pākehā, you talk about tangata tiriti. Tangata whenua, mm. tangata tiriti and tangata Pākehā are off to the side. Can you just
1: explain that to me? Well, um, it's not based on race. It's actually based on uh, um, a description of who we are and so tangata whenua are people who are born of this, of this land and so Māori as the indigenous peoples are uh, tangata whenua. Tangata tiriti are those who have been, that have a relationship with tangata whenua through titiriti waeitane. And that's a healthy, it's, 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 a, it's a, an accepting relationship uh, that I believe is, is still growing, uh, I believe is, is, is still being honoured. But I, I see that generation coming through. Now I've, I've dubbed them Gen T, so uh, you've got Gen Y, Gen Z, You've got uh, millennials, but I've jub- dubbed this generation Gen T, Generation Titi, mm. uh, who I believe will move this country to a system that's more equitable and equal towards a Titi centric Aotearoa.
0: I want to ask about co-governance, and what has been interesting to me in the co-governance debate, and you're laughing already. I suspect, yeah. Is that Te Pāti Māori appears to have taken, at least publicly, a bit of a back seat in some of the debate. Have I misread that?
1: Oh, no, no, you haven't, um, because co-governance isn't something we've campaigned on. Um, but I'm I, I trying to understand what co-governance is and where the co-part of it is. Uh, we understand what governance is, and it's a promise in, the, in, in Te Treaty o Waitangi around kawanatanga. Mm. And so we understand that. The co-part of it is, is an interesting thought. And I think if I look at Article 3 of the Te Tiriti o Waitangi, where, where there was a the promise of equality, I think that's where co-governance sits, where we can make those equal and equitable decisions for greater nation, all uh, Treaty Central Aotearoa. Um, the other part of that though, is we've just spoken about, as mana and Tino Rangatiratanga, which I believe sits in Article 2, uh, which is the promise of uh, our full exclusive and undisturbed rights to our, our, our land, our fisheries, our forests, and our taonga. And so all of those things are, are, are something not to be afraid of, but something to accept, and something for us to be excited about in terms of a brighter future for our tamarigi
0: What does co-governance actually mean to you?
4: I think I think it's um, a language that has come about because it's suggesting the movement from uh, mono oh, yeah. to partnering, and I always think about um, what the late Wana um, Jackson said: is that te Tiriti is something to be honoured, not settled. Yeah. So I um, and I think that's the context of the discussions and you can see a very um, minority um, group are quite frightened by movement to the partnership. Um, we come from a relationship where actually, uh, as Article 2 indicated, we, uh, our rights and interests um, were recognised pre-colonisation, and um, that's the state we would have been in advance had our natural development not been interfered with. So I think uh, it is a, about varying degrees. I think we've taken the general view that it's a step in the right direction. Mm. and And I guess when it comes to the debate, and, and some horrific debates going on, they are more about the fact that we're moving from mono to a partnering relationship, and that's what's frightening some of the, those that are agitating.
0: I'm not sure if, if you're referencing ACT, but David Seymour says that co-governance is not democratic because it breaks with one person, one vote. Now, so uh, I know that Willie Jackson says, well, democracy has changed, that democracy is more nuanced, but what do you think, Ravi? Is co-governance strictly democratic?
1: Um, I, I don't know because those, like I said, I, I, I tend to stay away from those words because they're actually systems that don't belong to us, mm. and they're not systems that um, that I want to uh, advocate for because it actually works against what Madam Mutahakentin and Natiratang is and actually what the Treaty of Waitangi promised.
0: That's really interesting, though. So you're saying that democracy, as we think about it, is not necessarily consistent. With Teen rangatiratanga, no, well, as promised.
1: Well, right. it's the tyranny of the majority. Yeah. And that's how it works in this country. And so, um, minority groups like, like Māori, um, like our rainbow communities, like our disabled communities, have all felt the wrath of democracy, which is the tyranny of the
4: majority. But the other side of that is too, it, it's a state of privilege. So, for example, 2%. Um, can have 40% of the wealth of Aotearoa. Mm. They can buy democracy and suddenly become, well not suddenly, and are the majority voice. So we need to be really mindful of um, the, the being of democracy. The democracy, if we talk about Aotearoa, is here by Te tiriti this Parliament is here by Te tiriti, and I think that's where um, we see that. And there is, is it nuance or is it just actually been pono and teka mm. in returning to what, you know, is constitutionally correct here?
0: What you are essentially saying is that mana motohaki and tino rangatiratanga will never be achieved in a one-person, one-vote democracy.
1: Well, let's tease that out. What does, that, what does that actually mean? One person, one vote, democracy. Uh, what does that mean in terms of the collective view? And so Maori were very—we were were collective. We were were collective people. Um, Those uh, decisions—you may have—you may have had a chief of a hapu, but he never made those decisions by himself. That was made by the people who uphold uh, him to be their chief. And so chiefs didn't go out and make those decisions. Those were made by the people, and he was to be the one that um, uh, that uh, expressed the position of of his hapu. And so um, this one vote, one person takes away the the. the communalism and the, and the haputanga the uh, that our people operated under.
4: But I think there's an assumption, also if we were to tease this out and have that discussion about what transformational or constitutional um, transformation looks like in Aotearoa, there's an assumption that the next generation don't want to Uh, live balanced and live equally under Te Tiriti. There's an assumption that they actually like this right-left type of politicking that um, hasn't really done a heck of a lot of people in Aotearoa When you look at the majority of those that are um, enduring poverty, the amount of those that are homeless. So I think there's an assumption that status quo is always the way to go. Well
1: look at the amount of people that don't vote. And so the one man one vote actually is not. But they have an option too. And the system doesn't work because it's not inclusive of those uh, who don't understand that system. And but look so at some of
4: the parties. Look at some of the parties. Yeah. And you look at so you look at uh, our population. Seventy percent are under forty, and they look and just I'm not mentioning names, but one party they all look the same. Change is coming, and we just need to be open minded about that. And we're lucky in Aotearoa because we have te Tiriti, and we have a really strong. Indigenous um, way of being in Aotearoa?
0: The criticism ultimately from uh, people who oppose co governance is that uh, a population less than 20% of all people in Aotearoa will have enshrined in law representation of 50%. So a disproportionate level of representation relative to their population.
4: It's already enshrined though, really, isn't it, Jack? It's already, the treaty already exists.
0: This is it. So this is my ultimate question: <laughs> yeah. If, if we are to realise ttitity as you interpret ttitity, yes. David Seymour's idea of democracy is
1: inconsistent. It's impossible. Well, it's 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 an obsession with numbers, and not an obsession with the actual contract and the words that are in the treaty. It's it's simple. Um, but it's nothing to be afraid of.
4: That's right, that's point. It's something
1: really good to, point. to embrace. Yeah. Um, and so we can get caught up with numbers. Uh, you know, if we got caught up with numbers in 1840, Māori were around 90 to 100,000 strong and um, the, the early um, European settlers was about 2,000 and so democracy didn't work then, did mm. it? Uh, but they used laws around land ownership to vote and all that type of stuff which actually cancelled how many of our people from participating in the westernised democracy and so let's have the adult and mature conversation about actually what does a Treaty centric Aotearoa look like how do we honour that treaty and how do we show the rest of the world what a great nation looks like based on uh, a promise to each other
0: after the break, what will Te Pāti Māori do if it holds the balance of power? Hōke mai, welcome back to Q&A. When the government sought feedback to the He Puapua report and the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, iwi leaders kept coming back to one theme. Top of the list, they want to see greater steps towards tino ranga But what would that look like in practice, I took some of the proposals from the iwi consultation and put them to Te Pāti Māori. Would you support a Māori education authority?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Would you support the abolition of prisons? Absolutely. A yeah. bi-Māori for Māori um, kaupapa must happen. Look, we've just seen an increase in... Maori imprisonment and so the current system isn't working. You can't so just the name them
4: Maori Kopapa. Mm. You can't give them names and think like that's the solution. Follow through. Mm. Follow through and let us use our whole modelling um, because there were not prisons prior to colonisation. Just, just to be
0: totally clear though you'd support like no Maori in New Zealand being in prison.
4: Yeah I'd love no Maori to be in no, prison. No no no, no. but, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think we all, we all would. I see what you're doing here. No to be clear though you, you support the abolition of prisons
1: for Māori? We, we support the abolition of the current prison system in, in Aotearoa because it's not working. Um, the, the punitive uh, approach that this country takes on many of our people um, uh, is, is, is not working and so we need to look at a bi-Māori for Māori approach what does it look like we need to go back and, and, and talk to, uh, to our iwi leaders about what a mana motuhake and the tino approach looks like uh, when we're dealing with our whānau Waiho mate te whaka māi, patu i te tangata is a, is a common fakatoki uh, that we use in, in, in Māoridom and there's no better way of achieving that but through your own people
0: mm. There was an interesting change in kawa at Mwanda Jackson's tangi Women were invited to speak on the pie, and I know that this isn't strictly a political question, but do you have personal positions on that? Should women be able to speak on the pie?
1: I don't have a personal position on that. Uh, I, I come from a new where women speak on the marae. Uh, Mehiko Tukituku, one of our tipuna kuia stood up on Tarawa Marae, Faya Makachi uh, from Ngati Pro has stood on many Marae across the country um, I don't think it's a matter of gender on, on our marai on the Tairawhiti, it's a matter of ability and so if you have the ability uh, to, to be able to transverse and to be able to communicate and to be able to stand on the Marae and do that mate who's the best for the job? Is it, uh, is it the Māori uh that's in that group? Or is it the non Māori who can't speak Māori but because he's a male, he gets up on the Malai. Um, so it's always been about ability for Te Tairawhiti, I don't know about any, I'm not going to speak for any other iwi uh, But that's, that's my position, I have got no problems with it um, If my nanny before me, auntie, Antihiri Tana Tāwhifirangi ta is in the crowd and um, Or Neda Clavish or anybody like that uh, that um, believes they have something to say I, I believe they should take to their feet and say it
4: mm. and, and for us, I mean, our wahine are, um, yeah. first kai karanga, pau, um poi and so there's a whole lot of ways that each um, are doing. I think the thing is, it's really important is that we made that decision. And um, from my perspective, it's about respecting the kawa of yes, and tikanga, actually, of right. every marae to make that um, decision as they determine. And I think that is again the uniqueness of Te ao Māori, Is that you know we can be the same, but we do things differently. But I
1: don't think it should be it should be taken from a very tikanga point of view, and not a, not a suffrage you know uh, uh rights right. point of view because that's not that's not who we are that's a very colonial point of view uh, is that every marae should the tikanga should be the marae the tikanga should be uh, run from a maori perspective and not from a a women's suffrage perspective i don't, I don't let me pick that. you
0: up on that on that mm. colonial rights argument mm. because i have noticed some interesting comments from youda mm. around Louisa walls new appointment she's just been appointed as MFAT's ambassador for gender equality in the pacific You don't think that role should exist?
1: Well, uh, if the role has been determined by the Pacific, absolutely. If that role has been determined by Aotearoa and we're going to go and impose uh, those ideologies or or, or that type of role in the Pacific without them uh, being part of that conversation or without them driving that conversation, then we're no better than the colonial approach that was imposed on us. And so that's my my thing has got nothing to do with... um, with Lewis, i actually. My thing is about what does that role entail? Has it been driven by the Pacific? Uh, if not, then I'd like to know what what, is, what does it actually mean? What what are we trying to achieve here? And what will it do for the Pacific in terms of um, uh, uh, their ambitions in that particular space? Because it could in, in, it could um, interfere in their own tikanga. Uh, um, in, in regards to the way they do things over there. So I understand when I go to the Pacific who the mana is. They understand when they come here who the mana and is. And that's the relationship we have with our tangata moana relations.
0: I know it's a mistake to put too much weight in the polls, but three—I oh, look at you, laughing already. <laughs> You're loving it, aren't you? OK, then, Rawiri, I'll ask you this. Who's going to be Deputy Prime Minister? Oh, I'll give it to Debbie. <laughs> <Not at you. laughs> it, it, I mean, it, the, the, uh, three polls, by my reckoning, show the Māori Party in a kingmaker position. I know we're 18 months from the election.
1: She can be Deputy Prime Minister. Um, I'll be Co-Prime Minister. <laughs>
4: Oh, look, I ha- think, I how, think, how would you
1: approach that role? Oh. The, oh, the the role,
0: the kingmaker role. Oh, oh, no. yeah, okay.
4: oh, sorry, I thought you meant queenmaker? Oh, queenmaker. Oh, queen oh, queen
0: yeah. Mm. Cool. Okay, no, let's go back then. I was joking, but you're not. Do you no, think, no, no, I'm joking. Do you, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no do no. you? I mean, would you? Would you? If you were in a kingmaker position in 18 months' queen. time, would Tipati Maori seek? Deputy Prime Minister position?
1: Oh, I, I don't know what the positions are. Um, but we, we don't have ambitions to be to do that. We, we are here because we are a driven party. Mm. And so um, if, our, if it's, it's well with our kaupapa to be in <laughs> one of those positions, um, at the moment opposition seems to be the the best way to push our kaupapa. Right. Uh, because you're not actually um, in the government. Yeah is that you're sitting in opposition being able to advocate fiercely and unapologetically, uh, then um, we'll allow... Our people will probably make that decision for us.
4: We Come must focus on being here mm. and growing the movement um, in the long term. Yeah. And I think that's what's where our heads are at. And you asked the question before, is it deliberate that you haven't engaged at this sort of micro level? And it is because we experience what it's like not to have Te Pāti in here yeah. for a term. Yes. Um, and we live out there and see the desperation um, and also the passion for opportunities, the passion to reach our full potential. So we have to stay focused yes. on achieving that desired haki which is that 50-50. Mm. Um, so, you know, we've seen the polls and we sort of have a bit of a giggle at each other, uh, you know, certainly thinking they probably wouldn't let Dawiri bring in fish heads and, um, you know, and rotten corn if, if um, he has a role like that. But, you know, I guess <laughs> the, the reality is um, that we've got our um, feet very much on the ground and very, very focused on the bigger picture, bringing more in yeah. and um, growing um, and being more and yeah, more connected and more significant for our rangatahi who coming through with big issues
0: You and I took a stroll in mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. before the last election and you told me at the yeah. time mm-hmm. you yeah. told me at the time you wouldn't work with the National Party Has that changed?
4: I oh, look, I I, um, I actually did a speech last night I hope you listened to her, uh, about the legislation. Oh, did legislation Are you sure? <laughs> you, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> about the pae Oda legislation and there are, um, there has absolutely got to um, be a relationship with those who don't subjugate Māori, um, um, who don't um, race bait, who don't sit there and um, support policy that are going to be at the detriment of yeah. not only our ability to advance but our ability to survive. You know, So when you see a party that is having problems with a legislation that will be towards a solution of us stopping from dying seven years earlier than everyone else, then I would have extreme difficulties in being in any relationship, more or less a conversation, because I cannot gather how somebody would refuse any other human beings that, but specifically their tangata whenua. So um, I think you know, we've been really um, bold now in pushing back and saying we have to call this out and there's no way that we would ever be able to um, be in any relation. It doesn't matter if they're blue, green, yellow, orange. And it's not just ACT that are playing into that game at the moment. We've got a party like, uh, not national, we've got a party like ACT that comes out and then goes to fundraise off the fact that they don't want to party Māori and they don't want a tangata a voice. It's like, you know, so ask yourself. Now, this is the depth of um, of politicking and the desperation of politicking at the expense of tangata whenua offering no other solution.
0: You feel like you have been effective in opposition by agitating against the system, by agitating against democracy. But if in 18 months you find yourself in a position where you can decide the the structure of the next government, there is massive potential, there's massive opportunity there. What might New Zealand look like if you're in a position to advance your kaupapa through being part of the next government?
1: It will look closer to moving towards a Tiriti Centre Aotearoa. And so the relationship that we broker with whoever is fortunate enough to have Tiwi Māori sitting at that table, having those discussions, uh, will... will um, would will not only be privy to something that's absolutely brand new, uh, it's not going to be a confidence and supply coalition type. This will be a Tiriti-centric uh, kaupapa, um that we will be uh, advocating for, but to ensure that, um, that it is fair, just, equal and equitable for all, not just for Tangata Venua, but for everybody that the Treaty promised.
0: Rawiri Waititi and Debbie Ngare Wapaka. Coming up, why is it that one of the most contentious political issues in New Zealand right now is the introduction and funding of cycleways? Yeah, cycleways. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. Auckland Council has endorsed the business case for a $306 million plan to build more cycleways. But to fully realise a comprehensive cycleway network in our biggest city might cost $2 billion all up. And the dedicated lanes remain as divisive as ever. The thing that really piqued our attention this week, no fewer than seven Auckland councillors abstained from the vote on cycleways. Matt Lowry is an urban design and public transport advocate. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Kia ora. What is it about cycleways that is so divisive? Uh,
5: I think that people are just scared of change often and so we think about the, the cities that have changed over time and, and we think of the likes of Amsterdam and, and, and Copenhagen and, and think that you know we can't achieve those but we've, if we look back 50 years they were like Auckland was now, they have car, cities congested with cars and they made a choice to change it and change is hard and um, yeah, some people don't want it and particularly those councillors that, that abstained I think are trying to, to appease those voters as opposed to looking for the future and trying to build a a better city.
0: I I want to talk about the abstentions just a little bit more because what fascinates me is the political process and some of the tensions in the political process. So there were seven abstentions in total. Now, to be clear, the two independent Māori statutory board members abstained because they said Māori had not been sufficiently consulted with this proposal. But there were five other abstentions. What did you make of that many abstentions?
5: Well, I I think what that shows is that uh, councillors know that they that these are are good projects and they don't and they want to get them built but they don't want to be on record as voting against them and in some ways that's a positive because uh, you know we want and we need to get these cycleways built um but it it also shows a bit of cowardice because they're not putting out there what what they actually think and they're sort of pandering to to a certain segment of their electorate
0: The benefit-cost ratio has been estimated at 2.2 to 3.7 for the funding already committed. Now, to be clear, any benefit-cost ratio above one means that it will deliver a net positive. So why isn't that sort of analysis reflected in political attitudes?
5: Uh, Well, we see that across the board, where where the benefit-cost ratio doesn't really uh, comprehend to what we see with being delivered. And so... um, the government are currently delivering a large package called the New Zealand Upgrade Programme, includes a large number of, of motorways. So, for example, the, the, one of those projects is Otaki to Live in a, an Expressway. And that has a benefit-cost ratio of 0.2, and that was before the cost doubled. And so the, that is going ahead regardless of of its benefit-cost ratio, despite it being very poor. And the cycleways, which have a fantastic cost-benefit ratio, and, and, and often these are very conservative figures as well for cycleways because we just don't have the... Good modelling to to understand the impact of them, and uh, you you get this get get some political divisiveness that occurs that um, that tries and stops them.
0: Is there an Auckland factor in this? So transport makes up the second largest sector of our overall emissions profile after agriculture and it's fascinating to look at the numbers of cyclists in Auckland compared to other cities. So for example in Auckland cyclists make up 1% of commuter trips, in Wellington it's 2.5%, in Nelson which is a hilly city it's 6.1%. What is it about Auckland?
5: Well Auckland is very geographically spread out and there are a lot of people who who don't live close to where they work, and they or, or they have long trips across town, and you know that's not necessarily that they can't live close to work. It's some might have, you know, their partner might might be somewhere else, and they're trying to balance that. Um, but but Auckland is very ge- geographically spread out, and so therefore it means that if you're on a bike, there is a lot of opportunity where you're not going to be on a safe route that is easy to ride, and that is a really driving factor of. We have how much people will ride their bikes.
0: There is resistance, too, to the cost in Auckland. An independent report last year found Auckland cycleways are some of the most expensive in the world at around $30 a head
5: for cycling infrastructure. Compare that to New York City, $2 a head. How is that acceptable? It's, it's not. And we've got ourselves into a situation where in trying to appease people by, by not taking away things like roadside parking or on arterials and things like that, that we're, we're, tr- we're going to the expensive cost of of off-road solutions, widening the curbs, and you know, digging up the roads to, to be able to deliver these projects. And that adds a huge amount of cost, uh, as opposed to, um, to you know, as taking away some parking and putting down some protection. That is used very effectively, and we've used it here very effectively.
0: So what you're saying is that in order to try and appease critics of cycleways, we're spending more on cycleways, which then attracts criticism from those who oppose cycleways. A- absolutely, yeah. Right. That's exactly what's happening. What is the strategy for cycling advocates uh, for for what is clearly an incredibly divisive
5: issue in trying to
0: uh, introduce more cycleways in our biggest cities?
5: Well, I think I think we have to look at, at what uh, what cycleways are used for, and that is, yeah, you know, it's getting people to work, it's getting people to school. And we look at one of the big opportunities for for cycling is is people being able to, you know, kids being able to ride to school by themselves again, because that actually takes off. A lot of trips from the road, it, mm. it frees up traffic, and, or frees up the roads for, for people who need to be on the roads, you know, tradies and, and freight and what have you. And, you know, let's face it, kids love it. And we saw last year during lockdown, or 2020 during lockdown particularly, uh, you know, thousands of families were out on their bikes and enjoying mm. it, and the reason they were able to do that was simply because they felt safer, there was fewer cars on the road, and, you know, they, 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 they had less concerns about having their kids out there doing that.
0: If Auckland is to achieve its carbon emissions targets, another $1.7 billion needs to be spent on cycleways in the city. The council said this week that it wants help from elsewhere, presumably central government, and of course the government is set to release its emissions reduction plan in the next few
5: weeks. Will cycleways feature? I certainly hope so. Um, I I think we need to have a large package of cycleway delivery, not just in Auckland, but in, in all our major cities, in all our cities really. And I would also like to see the, the government coming in and, and adopting the, the same thing with the clean car rebate scheme, but with also with e-bikes. So allowing uh, people to claim a rebate on an e-bike, which are very expensive, but still far cheaper than a car. And e-bikes are, are almost a gateway drug to, to cycling because they take a lot of the effort out. They they, they can travel a bit faster. That they they you, know, you can turn up to, to your work or whatever you want to do. You know you're not sweaty. Uh, they're a fantastic way to to increase the, the level of, of cycle of cycling and you know make it much more accessible
0: it'll be interesting to see if that features matt lowry from greater auckland tēnā koe thank you after the break on q a how many security guards do you need for a don brash speech we will show you what happened when the former politician returned to speak at massey university Kia we welcome back to Q&A. As Parliament's referee, the Speaker of the House is one of the most powerful individuals in the country. But usually the person in that role keeps a pretty low profile. There's a good chance many voters have absolutely no idea who the Speaker even is. Once again this week, Speaker Trevor Mallard bucked the low-profile convention. His office issued stood by and then rescinded trespass notices for several former MPs who appeared at this year's parliamentary protests. But of course, this isn't the first time Trevor Mallard has found himself at the centre of a controversy. Here's Connor Sterling.
6: Trevor Mallard, a political scrapper living up to the name back in 2007. It's one of the most stupid things I've ever done in my life and I really regret it. Punching nationals Henare in Parliament's lobby, I'm a minister, you know, I'm 53 years old, I shouldn't be acting like a stalker. A brutal performance also reflected in the debating chamber. Order!
7: Order. Well, I did Order. not make the comment! Well, the member will leave the chamber
6: for the rest of the day.
7: For not making a comment? Order! For goodness The goodness member will not dispute the Speaker. Yeah. Mr Speaker, Order. sit down till I'm finished.
6: Goodness Order. One of the most experienced MPs, the drama didn't stop when it came to being elected. Yes. Once he was immediately making his points of difference known, from babies in the house Honourable Judith
4: Mr. Collins, Speaker, thank
6: you. to keeping a running tab on who was acting up. Who was the member who interjected then? Right, there's an additional question to the opposition. All the while, his fresh approach to question time ruffling opposition feathers.
2: We're speaking to the point of order. No, there's no
7: point of order. If the member wants a further supplementary, she can take it. If not, we'll no, move
2: on. I'm leaving. <laughs> what
4: a waste. He singles me out. Uh, I just kind of think that, it, you know, at some level, it's got personal for him.
6: From sliding out to an actual slide on Parliament grounds and with a price tag of over $200,000. A review inside the halls of power following claims of bullying came back with more shocking findings. Mallard claiming three sexual assaults uncovered amounted to rape. It's a claim he would later refrain from repeating outside of the house and one which cost the taxpayer $80,000 defending before Mallard apologised at the end of 2020 with its own $158,000 settlement. Talk to
1: you about the case.
6: Fast forward to this term, he removed the requirement for men to wear ties amid days of challenge by Māori Party co-leader Rawiri Waititi.
7: I do not recognise the member, he will now leave the chamber.
6: Although that verbal clash was perhaps overshadowed by one with protesters at Parliament. Making conditions on the grounds worse by playing loud music and turning on sprinklers to disperse them. Those actions, one of many, that have led to the opposition saying they have no confidence in Speaker Trevor Mallard.
0: Now we have put in so many requests for an interview with Trevor Mallard. He wouldn't appear during or after the protests earlier this year, and once again this week he denied our interview requests. But one person with a good understanding of Mallard's role is former Speaker of the House Sir David Carter. What did you make of the Speaker's decision to issue trespass notices to former MPs?
7: Bizarre. Bizarre. Um, If people have been here protesting peacefully, they've got every right to do so. If they broke the law, then serve trespass notice on those people, perhaps. But somebody like Winston Peters, a former Deputy Prime Minister, who just happened to visit the protesters, for him to be issued with a trespass notice was just a nonsense.
0: The Speaker said it wasn't his decision, it was the decision of other people in his office. What do you make of that?
7: Well, I know that when I was there as Speaker, you were effectively the Minister of Parliamentary Service, and as Minister, he would or should have been informed of the decision. I notice it was him that then claimed credit when the trespass notices were cancelled. So I'm surprised that Mr Mallard tries to have it both ways. Was it
0: a political decision?
7: I, I, I doubt that, I don't know. But I suspect it's just Mr Mallard's character. You know, he's a guy that um, was upset by that protest. It certainly did a lot of damage to the parliamentary complex while it occurred. And I think it was almost a vengeance attitude by Mr Mallard, but whether there was politics behind it I can't comment.
0: This isn't the first time his uh, performance as Speaker has been criticised. What is your assessment of how he has performed in that role?
7: From my own experience I think the most important thing when you become Speaker is to become Parliament's man. So you come from a political background, that's our system, you've got to actually disconnect yourself from that political background, you've got to become Parliament's person. I don't feel that Mr Mallard's ever done that. I don't think he's even really attempted to do that. He appears to be very much still part of the government and therefore helping the government in the House, and that's not the Speaker's role. Parliament would operate better, government would actually operate better, if the opposition had a fair chance in the debating chamber.
0: That's interesting that you're focusing on his performance in the House, because he's, fo- he's faced some unique challenges outside of the House, be it the, the protests or indeed the s- situation with the trespass notices. You think his performance in the House has been similarly inappropriate?
7: I retired at the end of 2020, so I was able to watch him 2017 to 2020. My observation then is that he was pretty tough on the opposition, not really giving them a chance to tease out some questions and tease out the performance of ministers. i am now left Parliament, I don't watch question time, I've got better things to do. But uh, he's certainly chased, uh, faced a lot of challenges with regards to COVID and access and more recently the, the um, protest. But, you know, some of his the fact he's in the media so much is not a good thing in my opinion. I think a speaker should not be in the media very often. Although he's in the media,
0: he's not in positions where he's interviewed very regularly, and I'm sure I'm not the only journalist who has sought interviews with the speaker. Is there protocol around uh, the access the speaker should provide to media and the interviews the speaker should be doing?
7: No. In effect, there is no textbook as to how you operate once you become speaker and I've watched, I think, six speakers in my time. Everyone has a different style. Mr Mallard certainly has a very different style from all the other speakers that I had the privilege of serving under, but there is no textbook. So if Mr Mallard wants to be involved in the media, that's his decision. If he wants to respond to some of the questions that have been raised over the last week, again, that's over to Mr Mallard.
0: Sticking with the theme of a journalist with a gripe, the press release announcing the withdrawal of the Trespass Notices was published at 2.01pm, so one minute after the end of Bridge Run, which meant that journalists no longer had access to ministers for the day. Perhaps I'm being cynical, but is that timing consistent with the neutrality required of a Speaker?
7: In short answer, no it's not. But he decided to do it at one minute past two, went into the House, Of was in the House by that stage, didn't want to take questions from the media.
0: National has a motion on the order paper for a vote of no confidence in the Speaker but says that Labour won't allow the debate to be had, it holds the majority at the moment and there's nothing the opposition can do. From a democratic perspective, is there a problem with that system? Should the opposition be able to bring a vote of no confidence against the Speaker?
7: Well, they can put it down on the order paper as to whether it's progressed is then over to seeking leave, and any member can decline leave, so it's it's probably not going to progress. At the end of the day, I think the Prime Minister is responsible. She became Prime Minister, she forms a Cabinet, she effectively also uh, appoints the Speaker, though it is then voted on by Parliament. So she is the person who put Mr Mallard in this role. She has to satisfy herself as to whether his performance as Speaker is actually servicing, serving democracy properly, uh, giving the government a fair chance to show itself in front of the public, giving the opposition a better chance to show itself. And in my opinion, if you get a good strong opposition, you actually get a better government and you get it delivering for the people of New Zealand. And that's what democracy is about. That was
0: former Speaker Sir David Carter. If you want to contact Q&A, please or my. These are our main platforms. You can get in touch with us via email or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. On the subject of controversial speakers, you might remember the controversy over Don Brash appearing at Massey University. Well, this week Don Brash went back and did speak on campus. Reporter Fena Owen was
2: there. Security officers, police, and playing-clothed dudes with earpieces, ETA 1600.
7: We want to be
4: free! what want
2: to do! And on-site, Dr Don Brash. Well, that was a very uneventful arrival on campus.
1: We've
0: got a lot of security here today.
2: Jonathan Ayling is the head of the Free Speech Union.
0: Actually, everyday Kiwis are quite okay with us exercising our right to free speech. But uh, there's a t- very small portion of people who try and shut these things down and it's just really not on.
2: Back up to 2018 when Massey University shut Don Brash down, he was scheduled to speak. It was big news then against the backdrop of the emerging culture wars. Trump was into his term, and far-right crusaders Southern and Molyneux were about to arrive here. People took to the streets against racism. Don Brash eventually got to speak at Massey, but four years on, it's a different dynamic again.
1: Basically here because I believe in free speech. We also agree with what he says,
7: and I'm Maori, so I'm, I don't find him to be racist at all, because if I did, I wouldn't be here.
0: The former leader of the opposition, Don Brash.
2: This was meant to be the third lecture in a free speech series, but last week, AUT cancelled a talk that was to be given by Daphne Whitmore from Speak Up for Women. Why was it cancelled at AUT? Well, staff and students at AUT lobbied the
7: administration to have us excluded two days before the event was held.
2: But AUT told QA that although it recognises the right of trade unions to host meetings for their members on campus, an event planned by the free speech union had been advertised as a university lecture and as a result, AUT cancelled the room booking. So we changed it to a closed union meeting and they still shut us out. Now, one of their inclusion managers was a little bit um, more honest on Facebook and said, look, the reason that this meeting has been cancelled is that some people believe Speak Up For Women is a hateful group. We don't. Back in Palmerston North, Dr Brash has been challenged about his limits on freedom of speech.
5: I get the impression that you're a free speech absolutist, so could you say the n-word?
0: The n-word. Because you're saying that you can argue that black people are inferior. But to my earlier question, so can
7: you say the N word if you're? You know, I, I, I would not say the N word under any circumstances. I think it's an insulting slur. So in
2: Don Brash traversed a range of subjects: misinformation, media control, and others with common themes. The Treaty, Hapūapūa, Three Waters, Mātauranga Māori.
7: Do you know what Mātauranga means? my uh, knowledge of it, you mean?
1: Yeah.
7: Uh, very limited indeed. Uh, Very limited indeed. You say on Hobson's Pledge, it is through knowledge and understanding that we can move forward as one. Um, I find that a bit of a contradiction as you have no knowledge and no understanding of my taurama Māori.
2: It obviously doesn't concern you that um, to a chunk of New Zealanders when when, when you mention the name Don Brash, they do think racist. You know that, don't you?
7: Yeah, of course I do. And it irritates the hell out of me, quite frankly. I was brought up in an era when uh, racial equality was absolutely fundamental. I lived for five years in the US during the height of the civil rights movement. I was there when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Did you march? I did. Well, let well, me we qualify that. I was at that point st- on the staff of the World Bank. I was very tightly restricted in what I could. I couldn't even put a bumper sticker on. But, but I was very
1: strongly committed to that civil rights movement.
2: The Free Speech Union claims to have 75,000 members and growing and will be rolling out more speakers over the coming year.
0: Fiona Owen with that report. Stick around. Q&A is back after the break. The US Supreme Court is set to overturn Roe v. Wade, the historic judgement protecting access to abortion for American women. But in a country already divided by hyper-partisan politics, there's concern the decision could lead to widespread unrest. Andrea Grimes is a Texas-based journalist who covers reproductive rights. Kia ora, Andrea. Thanks for being with us on Q&A. What was your reaction when you saw that draft decision?
3: Yep, thanks so much for having me. Um, my reaction to um, the Supreme Court draft was... Um, DEVASTATION, BUT NOT SURPRISE. Um, I'VE BEEN COVERING ABORTION RIGHTS IN NEWS IN TEXAS AND THE UNITED STATES FOR 12 YEARS. Um, THIS IS A PATH um, THAT THE AMERICAN RIGHT WING HAS BEEN TAKING US DOWN FOR DECADES. Um, THEY'VE BEEN VERY OPEN ABOUT THEIR PLAN TO OVERTURN ROE VERSUS, Roe versus Wade TO BAN ABORTIONS BY ANY MEANS NECESSARY. Um, WE'VE KNOWN IT'S COMING FOR A LONG TIME, BUT THAT DOESN'T make. Um, the the reality any less terrifying um and the impact um any less dismaying we know this is going to disproportionately impact um folks of color in the united states low-income people um and it's just really um it's 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 bizarre to to think about something becoming reality that folks have been scared of and preparing for for years and years and years
0: You know, it is extraordinary for watchers of the Supreme Court to see an opinion like this leaked to the media. What does it say about this issue in particular that this was leaked?
3: Um, My goodness. Uh, I think it speaks to how... um, I think it speaks to how... uh, high touch this issue is for us. Mm. Um, you know, for um the Supreme Court covers all sorts of controversial issues. Obviously, um that is the nature of the work that they do, right? Um to have this leak, um, and and you know, there's been a lot of speculation, was it someone from the right or the left? Um you know, I'm not sure that the actual nature of of the origin is particularly important. Um, but I think it shows the passion um that people have to um be right on this to, to get it settled, right? Either way. Um, and it's uh it's it's very bizarre. It was very unexpected. Um, it's not unprecedented, but it is unusual. Um, and it and it does speak to um how um anxious the American people are, I think, to um figure out what's going on at the Supreme Court. It's, it's such a politicized court now. Um, again, very bizarre, not, a, not unprecedented, but really shocking.
0: What's gonna happen if this opinion is confirmed?
3: If the opinion is confirmed, then there are 26 states in the US that are certain or likely to ban abortion care as soon as possible. Um, So those states are predominantly located in the South and the Midwest and then Texas, um, and then sort of the Upper West, West, Middle West. Mm. Um, So abortion access will um, persist in the coasts Um, in the Northeast, um, in states like Illinois, perhaps, right? Um, But vast, vast swaths of the US are going to be wholly without clinical abortion providers. Um, Some states will move immediately to ban abortion. They have what's called trigger laws that have been on the books, um, some for months and some for decades um, that have said, you know, abortion will be banned here as soon as Roe versus Wade is overturned. Other states, it might take weeks, it might take months, but they'll move quite quickly.
0: It's interesting, over the last couple of days I've seen comments from uh, abortion access advocates saying that this decision would put America back 50 years, it would be like 1973 before Roe versus. Wade was actually passed. But ju- just to play devil's advocate for a moment, a majority of abortions in 2022 are provided via pill form, aren't they? So isn't there a possibility that women in states where abortion might be banned can still access abortion by getting abortion providers in other states to send them a pill?
3: It it is certainly a possibility. Um, There have been great advances in medicine since 1973. Um, Medication abortion is an incredible innovation. However, um, you know, we're we're not talking about going back to the coat hanger days. We fingers really, really, really crossed on that. That's why we're really trying to educate people about medication abortion in the United States. Self-managed medication abortion can be really, really safe. Um, But if people don't have the information they need um, on how the pills work, how best to use the pills, when folks shouldn't be using the pills, um, the pills are not indicated for every pregnancy. They can only be used up to a certain period, right? Um, So I think you see uh, the main concern um, with abortion by mail, medication Mm -hmm. abortion by mail, I think also is that uh, we have no reason to believe that states um, where abortion will be banned will not seek to criminalize the import and use of those pills. Um, we've already seen attacks um, and attempts at prosecuting folks for. Um, Uh, self-managed abortion and uh, you know there are uh, something the biden administration might do they could attempt to um make medication abortion better available by mail it's banned in a lot of places already um but that's gonna be i i don't think there's any reason to expect that a state like texas Mm. is just gonna sit there and and let folks um receive this vital essential life-saving medication um it's, it's just, it's not part of their MO.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, Texas has already introduced a, a bounty hunter style system uh, to, to try and restrict abortions so far. And I know that lawmakers in Louisiana are proposing that anyone who tries to access an abortion might be charged with murder in the future. Uh, I was outside the Supreme Court in 2020 when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed as a justice just days before the US election. It was a criticism at that moment and it's a criticism that continues. The US Supreme Court has become incredibly partisan, has become incredibly politicized. What do you think this draft decision says about the politicization of the US Supreme
1: Court?
3: um you know I think that it says that the um long-term project of this politicization has been realized um I, I you know I don't think there's any reason to think that um some of the more conservative justices on the court um Clarence Thomas for example uh, you know weren't put on the court to enact um uh, <laughs> to back conservative laws right um but I think that the um Trump appointees on the court um, were put there specifically to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, I think we saw um, that this question was on folks mind during the confirmation hearings for those justices. Mm. Um, and those justices uh, really waffled on that. They didn't wanna give a straight answer to the question. You know, They relied on precedent on stare decisis saying Roe versus Wade is settled law. Um, but advocates knew we could read between the lines. We knew that those were smoke screens. Um, a, Again, the, the right wing in the United States has been very, very clear about its goals to ban abortion by any means necessary, and they have achieved that, and it has really, um, it's shocking, it's devastating, and it's 100% expected.
0: All right, Andrea. Thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. That Thanks is Andrea so Grimes. what sure. matu. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching and kia pai te ra o mama. Happy Mother's Day. Hey te wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.